Welcome to episode 5 of the Reboot Insiders podcast. In today's episode, Jimmy talks more with Dr. Travis Ficklin, a professor of exercise science at Dixie State University, Dr. Robin Lund, the pitching coach at the University of Iowa, and Dr. Mike Sohn, chief scientist at ProPlay AI, before focus on live kinematic changes, analyzing correlations, and much more. Be on the lookout for the final part of this talk coming soon. Please enjoy Jimmy's conversation with Travis, Robin, and Mike. The way I look at it is clinical is like very established. I feel like they've been doing the same kinds of things for maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years. I don't know. When did marker motion capture data start to become a thing in the 90s? Maybe earlier than that. So clinical, I think, is very established and very stable. I don't know if it's like growing very much. It feels relatively stable. But what it feels like to me is sports performance is small, but growing super quickly. From my experience, right, when I started with the Dodgers back in 2015, the Dodgers were one of the first teams to actually hire somebody like me to do biomechanical stuff. They hired me and uh, my friend from grad school, Megan Schroeder. There were maybe two teams at the time with like stadium level motion capture systems. Now, if I had to estimate, I would say maybe two thirds of teams, maybe more have stadium level motion capture systems. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're very far away. If, if we're not there, I don't obviously know every single team. And I think we're getting close to every single major league baseball team having a stadium motion capture solution. And what that means is that every single one of these teams is looking for, for a biomechanist. And I've talked to a lot of teams and even if they don't want to like hire reboot motion, like something, something everyone always asks is, can you recommend any biomechanists to hire? I think everybody's on the lookout for biomechanical analysts now. And I can tell you in other sports, other sports, I think are behind baseball, except for maybe golf. Golf is, I think, maybe ahead in the biomechanics space a little bit. We've talked to hockey teams who are like, we think hockey might be a few years away from this, but we want to be the first team to analyze a slap shot. We've got inquiries from basketball teams that are like, we don't know if teams are thinking about this, but we want to use biomechanics to analyze false shots. Quarterbacks. We've gotten inquiries from NFL quarterbacks coaches being like, we think NFL teams might be a little ways away from this, but we want to analyze quarterbacks. Like I'm hearing that I think at least two NFL teams now are installing uh, motion capture solutions. I think it's growing rapidly. And then I always see uh, Dr. Mike Son on, on these webinars, which is awesome to see him. And I think like technologies like Pitch AI and what we're working on with Diamond Kinetics, I see Mike Ressler is here too, bringing motion capture to the masses. I think just like sports performance type applications are just growing really fast. And as the motion capture technology continues to get better, I think it'll grow faster. Yeah, what we want to start, we wanted to talk about last time was typical biomechanical analyses. What do they look like? And what do we think the pros and cons are? of typical biomechanical analyses. I don't know, Robin or Travis, do one of you guys want to maybe give a brief description of what you would say a typical biomechanical analysis that you might see, you might come across? I'll leave that up to Travis. In the most general of terms, typically they'll fall, sometimes they combine these, but you typically your analysis is gonna be kinematic, meaning you're gonna describe the motion, you're gonna describe things like positions, velocities, accelerations, or it could be kinetic. And so you're going to analyze things like torques and forces and, and so forth. And both things can be analyzed through motion capture. I, I might accidentally direct my remarks to, to pitching an, uh, analyses, but that's generally what you're gonna see in some type of analysis in pitching. You know, going back to Feltner and DePayne and a lot of 
Glenn Fleissig's group's publications, then you would, it just started going down the road with pitching of, these are the typical angular velocities that we see. These are the joint loads we see at the elbow and the shoulder during the pitch. And then that kind of started to, after a while of looking at everything at once, it started to become apparent where those things might be most important. So there's been over time, this idea of looking at things like elbow varus torque at certain times when the ulnar collateral ligament maybe is at most at risk and so on and so forth. And so they start to become very specific that way. And then you start to, to see, you started to see comparisons between youth pitchers, collegiate pitchers, professional pitchers, just to see how things scale up in terms of movements and velocities and also joint kinetics and things. I think that's pretty typical stuff, at least for pitching. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think the typical format, which is something I'm very interested in talking about, is the typical format is like pick key time points. For example, maybe the time of maximum external shoulder rotation or the time of foot plant or the time of ball release. And essentially like creating all of the joint angles at those key time points and then using those key time points as the basis for comparison. For example, right. using uh, Travis's example of maybe little league pitchers versus college pitchers, it would be like we have for little league pitchers, these are all of the joint angles at foot plant. And then for college pitchers, these are all the joint angles at foot plant. Maybe we do the velocity. What is the elbow velocity of foot plant? What is the peak elbow velocity? At, uh, if for the, So it's typically like all of the joint positions at a key time point, and then maybe peak velocities and peak torques. And then yep. they compare, and generally the basis of these typical biomechanical analyses are comparisons. And if we're lucky, statistical comparisons, which actually do statistical analysis and look for statistical significance. So uh, to me, that is like what I think of when I think of a typical biomechanical analyses is a comparison at key time points and then a comparison of maybe peaks. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's pretty typical. And then the creativity comes in if people try to simulate things like simulate what different effects that muscles might have on those motions or what effects they might have on protecting different structures. That's a creative application. I think things like trying to find ways to quantify fatigue in a pitching delivery, those types of things tend to be very creative. I'm always happy when I find stumble across one of those studies because it's not the same thing over and over again. It, it can get a little, if you're only looking at peaks, if you're only looking at key instants, yeah. after a while, you kind of feel like you, you, you know it, you know what I mean? You've read it, but you know what to expect, what the range of numbers will be. And there's not really a new insight uh, until you start trying to apply it, you know, in yeah. novel ways. Yeah. Shout out to Dr. Mike Son again with analysis of fatigue. I remember reading his paper. That was cool back in the day. That's that's a perfect example of creativity introduced to this type of analysis. It'll be interesting too, because like with the so much pressure on trying to get the games over quicker and less time between pitches, like we're at, like in division one, we're at a 20 second time clock. And that seems enough. Like we can, we haven't had any, I haven't seen any violations in two years. So that's what 22, so 15 games last year and eight games this year, no violations. It definitely has an effect on a kid's ability to hold velocity. And so all the stuff that we're talking about with biomechanics in particular, if they start making these changes at the big league level, like biomechanics is going to be even more important, right? Like efficiency of movement is going to be even more important if we are forcing pitchers to basically under duress and 35 pitches an inning and keeping them to that 20 second time clock is going to be 
it has an effect. It absolutely does. Yeah. Would you guys mind? I just, I just ping Mike. I think his study is pretty cool and it's an example of a creative application. So I can promote him to the panel for a second and he can give us a short rundown. That would be awesome. Mm -hmm. Congratulations to Mike Sauna's promotion to the panel. <laughs> Put down your poutine, Mike. And Hey, give me a second here. I got to make sure my hair looks as good as yours, Robin. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Always, always good to talk fatigue and, and pitching. And I apologize for the dimly lit. I, I always put on a nice ambiance for the Reboot Insiders here. <laughs> for those who might not have heard, like my background's in ergonomics. So it's biomechanics, but it's definitely on the, the side of occupational, a slightly different, a different approach <laughs> to biomechanics and definitely like a, a, a slower moving <laughs> approach <laughs> as uh, compared to pitching. And how, how the fatigue thing started was just when the pitch clock got announced, my PhD thesis was on evaluating fatigue in, in assembly lines. And it was just a, a no brainer. If you're doing workouts in the gym, if uh, you have less time between sets, you get more fatigue. It's pretty simple. You're not able to exert as much force. So that kind of led into the fatigue units idea, which is taking pitch counts, it's taking innings pitched, and it's taking, it's taking into your days of rest, the time between pitches and giving you one number there. And that got spun into what they're using in the modus sleeve now. But yeah, it's really just a matter of, I think what's probably happening. And, and we published a paper in PeerJ probably two years ago now with Rich Burfer, who's with the Rangers now. And what we found was that before you start to see uh, a drop in velocity, you're going to see a change in kinematics. But so it just shows that I think there's a lot of applications for using biomechanics data to identify fatigue and get ahead of, of things like velo, velo drops and that. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I think Travis was saying, like, I loved the creativity, like including other things and thinking about other things as opposed to just like, Join angles at foot plant, like comparing 12 year olds to 18 year olds, uh, thinking a little bit outside the box, which is sweet. No, I, I was just saying that guys like Robin and guys like Kyle Bodie and, and Casey Mulholland, and a lot of those guys were very welcoming to an outsider. So I think that's why some of this work on fatigue got, got so accepted very early on. Kudos to those people who are, are willing to let outside opinions uh, come in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, I think that's like really, cause it, it's an interesting time in baseball, I think with biomechanics in that I feel like there's a really, there's really an a very established way to do it, which is what we're talking about. And then there, I think there are myself and I think Travis, there's some kind of different approaches that we really like, but I think there's a lot of people doing the older established approach. And I think it's a really interesting time as like biomechanics is growing and people are using this established approach and are they clinging to the established approach? Do they think it's a better approach? Do we maybe move towards approaches that might be a little bit more actionable? I think it's a really interesting time in baseball with, for all of the new, with all of the biomechanical analysis developments that are occurring. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. So as we were talking about this typical biomechanical analysis approach, I want to talk through some of the reasons why we feel that might have some flaws. And I don't know, Travis or Robin, what do you guys want to kick us off there? I have a couple things that I could kick us off with, but I was curious if you had a spot you wanted to start. I guess for me, the, again, I, I'm not, a, again, a formally trained biomechanist. It's all been learned and um, on the fly, so to speak. But 
the idea of, and I think some of these, getting some of these databases built up, I think what Mike's doing with Pitch AI, and I assume every time somebody uses a product, Mike, like the database gets larger and larger, and that's all very important. Important. Like, I think it's really important that we start collecting data. Even those early studies, and we were talking about like the early biomechanics studies were just describing populations. I, I think those studies are important, like to establish baseline of what, here's what elite people do. And here's what non-elite people do. I think those things are really important. I guess what I wonder is, I feel like there's, as these databases build up that we're looking at what an average elite person does, and then does that actual average person even really exist? Does somebody even really move like this average person as we start looking at, at this stuff? And I'll just use an example of say the, the, how the rear, how the, the back foot or the rear leg works as we're driving and riding down the mound. You've got some guys that are able to really hold, I'll use coach speak here, a vertical shin and have, they have lots of external rotation and they can and again, I'll use more coach speak that the knees can really clamshell and they've got a lot of mobility in the hips as they externally rotate both hips out. And then there's some people like that have really tight hips and then the knee collapses right away. And you've got guys in either example that can throw hundred miles an hour. And yet the average of those two is somewhere in the middle in it. Yeah. So I guess that for me as a coach, now looking at some of these techniques and how, again, as we collect more and more data, I feel like there might need to be a little more context and a little more feel, if so to speak, when using that type of analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And another example, and I really don't like necessarily using examples, like counterexamples as a reason, but I think that this was a really interesting one that came up like literally today. There was some analysis of saying like a pitcher's shoulder tilt was like, it was more tilted than average. It was like outside normal ranges. But then, okay, let's look at this guy's arm slot. This guy's arm slot was literally over his head. He was literally throwing over the top of his head. And so in order to get the plane of his torso to line up with the plane of his throwing arm, he had to tilt his shoulders an insane amount to actually get an efficient plane of rotation with his torso compared to his arm. So in a maybe a typical biomechanical analysis based on averages, it says, oh, you are tilted too far to one side. But then when you do that, then are you also supposed to drop your arm slot in, or are you supposed to keep your arm super high and now your torso is very misaligned with your arm? Yeah, I guess the general thing is like we can create average numbers across an entire population, but there's actually no person, generally speaking, who is exactly average and who fits into average in every way. I think that they're my favorite kind of story and maybe I might bungle this. But there's like that fighter jet example where like they measured a bunch of people and they tried to design a fighter jet cockpit for the quote unquote average person. <laughs> but what ended up happening was when people tried to sit in the fighter jet, no one actually fit because some people had legs that were a little longer than average and they didn't fit. Their arms fit just fine. Some people had arms that were a little bit longer than average. Their arms didn't fit, but their legs fit just fine. So it turned out in trying to design the fighter jet for average, you made it so that no one could actually fit in. <laughs> hey, the human factors ergo space is mine, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, go for it. It was <laughs> No, no, that's totally true. That, and, and definitely something that we're starting to see, even as we start building out like the pitch AI database. I think we've, we've done about 10,000 analyses now since January. And you start to look at velocities and you start to look at torques and you start to say, what are the correlations between these things? And people think that there's going to be one 
magic bullet number <laughs> in biomechanics that is going to be, this guy's going to get hurt or they're not. And it's just not the case. So I really do believe that, but that's probably the biggest downfall in our current state of biomechanics is that people are looking for that one number to say, this is it. And definitely, I think the best way to compare biomechanics data is to look at one player compared against themselves and see how they change over time as they train or as they fatigue, whatever it might be. That's probably the biggest use of, of that type of data. Yeah, definitely. And uh, in, in art, I you know we, we said we would prioritize questions. So art has had a question out here for a few minutes and he asked that in these biomechanical analyses, and I, I think a part of this, I think this is is interesting, Mike, you say, like people changing over time, like sometimes you don't even, you see these numbers that are changing over time, but Art asked, how do you estimate the mass for each of the body segments? And typically the way you do that to make it simple, you could put somebody in a DEXA scanner and actually yeah. literally measure the mass of each body part. But typically what you do is you ask for the person's mass as a whole, and then you distribute that mass across body parts based on a bunch of either motion capture data, like you can say, I know the upper arm is this long compared to the height. So we can scale the upper arm relative to the total body mass. Or sometimes there are like standard parameters, like typically the arm is this percent of the total body mass. Um, yeah. Did you want to add? Based on, based on an average. Um, yeah. Well, anthropometry. What I, <laughs> yeah. But what I was going to say too, is to, to Mike's point, like, comparing somebody over time, like what if they gain 10 pounds? I guess I'm saying like even tracking over time, you got to be careful because sometimes you don't have all the information. Actually, a lot of times you don't have all the information. Maybe somebody gained 10 pounds. Maybe somebody lost 10 pounds. Maybe on this day, they got four hours of sleep. Maybe, I don't know, they drank three Diet Cokes and they were <laughs> like hopped up on caffeine. Yeah, I think that's what makes these things when we're trying to rely on these statistical analysis, I think that's one of these things that make it super tricky is because it's almost impossible to encapsulate all of the parameters in your statistical analysis. So somehow you, I don't know, I'm not a statistician by any stretch. So I'm sure there are ways to like maybe random effects or things like that. But I think that is what, yeah, one of the tricky things when you use statistics as a basis. Something Mike just brought up a little while ago that I was a really interesting comment is this idea of what you might see kinematically change before, I, I wanna make sure I said this the right way, that you'd see something kinematically change with fatigue, which can affect, and or did I have it backwards? I'm trying to remember how you said nope. it. That you'd no, see, no, that, that you'd was see a kinematic findings. change and that would happen before fatigue was at a state where injury was risk at risk. Or like basically the one thing I've always heard is watch velocity dips and that's yeah. a sign of somebody fatiguing. But what we're finding is that people will maintain their velocity by adapting different kinematics, okay. adapting different mechanics. So they're putting themselves in a, a position that might be higher risk. So that will happen before you see the performance dip. Yeah. So that's, a, and so then the task becomes for somebody like Robin, can you see that visually during a game? If you're tracking it during a game somehow, if when things progress to the point where that could be measured in real time during games, which we're getting closer and closer to, then what is sense enough to, sensitive enough to see those changes to me is a really interesting question because there's variability that's real in somebody's mm -hmm. delivery. There's variability that comes from measurement error. And then at the point we're at now where we're trying to, at least I know I'm trying to trend towards markerless instead of using marker capture, 
then how much variability is coming from the difficulties that can arise from tracking markerlessly and so on and so forth. And so where is, what's the level of sensitivity to be able to detect a change that is meaningful? I think that's a really important question. I think it's a really hard question to answer. And I think that is a frontier to be explored. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be interesting to see if we could probably almost do a, a secondary analysis like we have about 600,000 pitches in our trackman database like 2300 division one pitchers represented in this database and you could it's got timestamps. it's got but i guess the one kinematic data that we do have is release height and release side which could be a very kind of cavemanish right descriptor yeah. of changing kinematics if, if something's changing we might see the hand at release yeah. we could almost i might throw our analysts on that question tomorrow yeah. actually <laughs> I'll send them. A, I, I had an abstract for Canadian Society for Biomechanics in 2010 that just looked at like the pitch FX database and tried to right. answer that exact question. So I'll, I can send you that abstract so you can, uh, you can give your guys a head start. Yeah, because they were asking for they were asking for projects anyway. So, <laughs> yep, oh, yeah, I can share that abstract with everybody. That'd be, that'd be yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Yeah, maybe actually, Mike, we, we could probably if you would be down, like we, we have an email list of like people who are subscribed to this obviously send it to whoever you want but if you want it like you could send it to me and we could pass it out for sure yeah for sure man what's cool about the trackman data though is that's in real time guy makes yeah. a pitch we've got that extension that release height release side right now and you could almost our, our kids could our, could type that in right away and then just create some type of little alarm that goes off if this thing exceeds some some range or we just pick some value that's a certain function of where it's at or whatever. It'd be interesting to see. I bet. Did you find anything, Mike? I'm just curious. Yeah, we did. We there was uh, that 2010 was a while ago, but uh, yeah, there was there were some significant findings. But I'll pass them along to you. Okay. I, no. I can't remember them off the top of my sure. head, but I believe the release point like went more horizontal. Sure, that makes total sense. Um, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I think this is some like a standard thing that a lot of biomechanical people do. So of course I did this type of thing and it felt like there's actually a lot of pitchers whose like arm slot dropped over the course of the game. And actually one of the interesting questions I think that comes out of this is this is their, just their typical pattern. Like every single game, their arm slot drops and they're a good pitcher and their arm slot drops. And so do we care that their arm slot drops? Cause it, it happens every single game and every single game they're fine as we're creating like these, the, the flagging system or whatever, I think, it's a, it's an interesting question of what do you care about? What matters? Yep. Yeah. If it's really typical, then it is what it is, but yeah, that's, it's a very good question. It, it, it really is. But we've noticed our, we have like our younger kids, their velocity drops a lot faster without any arm slot changes. So my guess yeah. is it's going to be a lot more complicated than yeah. I thought. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening to the Reboot Insiders podcast. Be on the lookout for future episodes, and as always, feel free to reach out at insiders at rebootmotion.com or on Twitter at rebootmotion.